Welcome back to another edition of the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. Can you believe it is October already? And I know it's October because this is our first show for that month. And today we've got a great one for you. We're going to go over the design of Shanghai Disneyland's Main Street with one Mr. Jim Hill. He is Mr. Pumpkin Spice Latte himself. How's it going, Jim? Oh, no, don't, no, don't. <laughs> That's kind of a bone of contention with myself and Nancy. It's, oh, really? This is time of year. Everything is pumpkin spice. In fact, I sent her a photo not that long ago where it was it was a tire shop actually down south that had put on its marquee. It's like, come in for our pumpkin spice tires. <laughs> we don't actually eat the pumpkin. It's a gourd. It's a decorative gourd. That's it, exactly. I mean, we all have pumpkin pie once a year at Thanksgiving. And, you know, it's... Wait, when like, you eat anything that's put in front of you. <laughs> pretty much. There's a reason when you cut a piece of, of pumpkin pie, it sort of looks like a doorstop. All right. Uh, you said some interesting uh, concept art. It is for today's topic, which is the design of Shanghai Disneyland's Main Street. So you'll give us some background. But you actually got this from the, the guy that did the, the conceptual stuff for it, right? That's right. Tim Delaney, a wonderful Disney artist, no longer works for the company, but, but occasionally comes in and consults on stuff. And so many of the things that you love at the Disney parks, whether it's things like the Living Seas or Tomorrowland or that sort of thing, all had Tim's hand on it. And when Disney started moving seriously toward China as a market, Tim was right in the middle of the mix. For example, he did a lot of the work on Hong Kong Disneyland's Tomorrowland. And mm-hmm. I bring him up today because Main Street USA was difficult for Shanghai, mostly because you've got the, the mantra that Iger's got out there. This $5.5 billion resort they're building mm-hmm. is going to be authentically Disney and distinctly Chinese. And you're building a Disney theme park. Typically, people think when they enter the park, we're going through Main Street. Right. and Main Street USA. Each of the, the quote-unquote Disney parks have done this, whether it's Walt Disney World took what Disneyland did in, in 55 and scaled it up for 71. And for Hong Kong Disneyland, when that opened in 83, I mean, they threw a glass roof over it. By the time they got to working on Paris, the belief was that this really wasn't going to resonate with the French. And in fact, they did their research and would work better for the the French park was a, a 1920s version of Main Street USA. Speakeasies, Jimmy Cagney. That's it, exactly. Really? You nailed it. In the place of where Waltz is in that park, that wonderful restaurant with each of the five different dining rooms that celebrates an individual leader of the park. They were, in fact, going to have a speakeasy. But what was cool about it, had you ever seen, there's a Bob Hope movie called The Lemon Drop Kid, or there's Frank Sinatra film called Robin and the Seven Hoods? Yes. <laughs> okay, so you know the scene in that movie where there's a casino where right. when the pol- when the police arrive, the walls rotate and it becomes like... I think that they're having in Robin and the Seven Hoods. They're having a revival meeting. Yeah, that's right. So it goes from a, it goes from bar to a revival meeting, right? That's what they wanted to do with this restaurant. I mean, literally, you'd be inside eating, and there'd be buzzer sound. Oh, the police are here, and the walls would rotate. And then you'd have a cast member walk through the restaurant trying to find the the gambling and the drinking, and where did it go? And just, I mean, it was a wonderful touch. The idea was that you walk down the street, and there were going to be gangsters, and there were going to be flappers, and this was all in place. This was all ready to go until Michael Eisner, on a Friday night, goes out and sees the Untouchables and sees the scene where Robert De Niro beats a guy to death with a baseball bat. But, but that would happen in the arcades, in the alleys. It wouldn't be actually <laughs> on Main Street, Jim. Poor Eddie comes into work on a Monday and it's like, Michael wants to talk to you. And uh, Michael like, has some notes. 
Yeah, it's a, I don't think we should do the, the, the 1920s gambler thing anymore. Yeti tells this great story about they're now a full year behind schedule because Michael changes the theme of what Main Street's supposed to be like. They have to play catch up with everybody else in the park. They're, I guess, three months out from opening and they're running crews 24-7 in the area and Eisner flies in to check out the work, and Eddie's there at 3 o'clock in the morning, art directing, and <laughs> it's outside of Paris, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, it's cold, it's wet, it's damp. So they're standing on Main Street around a trash fire trying to keep warm, <laughs> and Eisner, who's flown in, you know, suddenly at the work site, and he's looking around, you know, and it just sort of mentions offhand to Eddie, yeah, maybe we should have stuck with the 1920s jazz age thing. Oh. And, it was all Eddie could do not to pull a flaming two-by-four out of the trash fire <laughs> and beat Michael to death. <laughs> you know, it's just sort of like, it's like, thanks, thanks, wow. Thanks, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe not. So now it comes time for Hong Kong Disneyland. And again, same thing. The turn of the century it just isn't going to work here. And so for a time, they look at Main Street of 1955. I mean, the notion of, okay, let's line the street with classic cars. Let's have a store on Main Street that's selling brand new televisions with a whole 8-inch wide screen. And yeah. then, you know, when that idea didn't, didn't fly, that they, they tried what they referred to as the whimsical version of, of Main Street, where you had classic buildings from Disney films sort of side by side by side. So you'd have... The Darling's House from Peter Pan next door to the house from Lady and the Tramp. And, and, you know, you have all these facades that you walked on the street, and I know it from that film, and I know it from this film, and Tony's Restaurant from Lady and the Tramp. And then in the more cynical take on the, the Main Street idea, they literally went with the notion of, okay, we'll just do turn-of-the-century facades, but inside of all of these shops, we'll have American retailers, we'll have a Nike store, we'll have a Starbucks. Uh, in fact, it's kind of ironic the Starbucks did finally make it in. But what they do is they throw a gate at the end of Main Street. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you could have this open as a retail corridor, much the same as downtown Disney, after the park had closed for the night. You keep it open for till 2 o'clock in the morning or throw it open at 8 a.m. And then when the park officially opened for the day, that would be your entrance point. The problem with that is you then got into sort of weird issues about, well, do you put turnstiles at the end of Main Street? How do people access the rest of the park? Yeah, what do you do then? Yeah, do you, yeah, do you, do you walk them back out and then through the turnstiles again? What happens? Okay, that can be that can be difficult. And the other issue, I know we've talked about this in the past, about the, how the, the Chinese people just don't know the Disney characters. Disney had hope. In fact, they did get this in, in Hong Kong. They got a sort of a dedicated Disney channel going or, or a block of Disney programming five years before that park opened. And that really did help familiarize people with the Disney characters. However, the Chinese government got that much more hardcore after the Shanghai deal had been brokered. And they had thought they were going to get a channel that would broadcast to the mainland and introduce the characters, and that never happened. In fact, if anything, China's become that much more rigid about allowing outside content in the the limited number of films that they're allowing in their theaters from American blockbusters and that sort of thing. And it's just, just been interesting to see how Disney and DreamWorks have tried to sort of work their way around it. I mean, for example, you may remember with Iron Man 3, they actually shot two scenes on the Chinese mainland just so they could insert them into the film. And oh, right, yeah. And, you know, by the eyes of the Chinese government, it was like, okay, that's a Chinese movie now. That can go wide. 
Same thing with DreamWorks upcoming release uh, for 2016, Kung Fu Panda 3, that because a certain amount of that film was actually animated in Japan at a facility that DreamWorks built there, again, that's perceived as a Chinese film, at least by the government, it can go wide. They built an animation studio in China just to animate enough of the scenes to get it to qualify for the exemption? Yeah, when you want to do business with China, this is what you have to do. And part of this is the Chinese government doesn't necessarily want American influence on, on their culture, which explains a lot of their attitude about the Internet and that sort of things. And, and Disney's had to take this into consideration. I was I told this this past summer just an amazing story by a, a veteran Disney employee. I can't tell you what division of the company he works for because I don't want to get this guy in trouble. Okay. But he has a lot of dealings with consumer products and stuff that goes into the parks. And he was telling me the story about this edict came down earlier this year from Disney corporate. And basically what they said is, I know you guys make a lot of pins and T-shirts that have Mickey either standing in front of the American flag or saluting the American flag or that sort of thing. And it was just sort of very quietly said, could we hold off on those for a while? Could we we cut back? And the pushback was, why would we do that? I mean, you know, we've been particularly since 9/11, we've been doing those, and they've been selling great for years. Sure. And eventually, the story came down. It's like, look, you know, we're opening Shanghai Disneyland, and we don't necessarily want that merch to show up in the parks. You know, even by accident, even if a, a tourist comes in wearing a Mickey shirt or one of those pins, because you know, again, the, the Chinese are very sensitive about it, and to put Mickey directly in front of the flag or saluting the flag suggests that he's beholden to America. And the idea that Disney's now trying to walk out is that the Disney characters are citizens of the world, that they don't necessarily, they aren't American. Their characters are out in the world. In fact, if you look at what they've done with those new sets of Mickey shorts. Oh, see, those are genius. We've talked about these in the previous show. Yeah, it's Mickey in Mumbai, Mickey in Paris, Mickey in Venice. I mean, Japan. Uh, yeah. the other edict that came down at the same time was that we need to stop for a while putting the Disney characters in different costumes. But you can't put Minnie anymore, from a merchandise point of view, in Belle's dress or Snow White's dress or, you know, that Cinderella's dress. And conversely, you can't dress Mickey as Bert from Jolly Holidays and Mary Poppins. And a lot of that is also about the fact that they're introducing these characters to China and that they need them to have solid identities. They need them to be instantly knowable, not you know, ah. the effect of like, okay, why is Mickey wearing a multi-stroll hat and or coat and a, a straw boater? You know, just that it's like, no, 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 no. Put him in his red shirts and his yellow buttons and we'll be fine. So this is why, taking this into account, that Disney has to make sure that the Chinese people are comfortable with these characters and know exactly who they are. This is why they built Mickey Avenue. It addresses two problems. You know, one is that if the Chinese are uncomfortable with American culture and face it, that's what Main Street USA is. It's, yep. you know, turn of the century America. So, all right, we eliminate that. They stress right up front, Main Street USA at the Disney parks is inspired by the optimism of turn of the century America, whereas Mickey Avenue is the home to Mickey and his pals. That's it. Wow. But this is the idea that as you enter the park, you go under a train station-like structure. Okay. What's kind of fun about this is train station-like structure no train. You oh, know, yes, they, is there an actual train? No, it's a train train. No, nope. okay. this will be used for sort of the kiss goodnight thing that they do at a lot of the parks. And 
This will be the point as you're exiting the park for the night. The characters will be up there waving to the crowds as they head out. It has the proscenium-like structure that people enjoy from the the other Disney parks. I mean, you go in the tunnel and you get you know you come out and you get that beauty shot of the um, the area. Yeah. So no train. There's a berm. A berm of sorts. They actually stepped away from the berm idea. In their equivalent of downtown Disney, they wanted people who were eating in restaurants, particularly the high-end restaurants, to be able to look into the park. And they're actually kind of cozy up you know, to the end of, of Mickey Avenue and peek over what would be the berm out into the gardens of imagination so you know if you if you eat in this area that it's called disney town rather than downtown disney or disney springs but if you if you eat in the restaurants there you'll be able to see the nighttime spectacular over the park and in fact they have a pretty good view of tomorrowland while they're at it anyway uh, getting back to, to the mickey avenue here from a size point of view if you know your classic disney park if you know the you know sort of the town square area picture that and then about a half-length Main Street. Okay. Um, wow. All and, right. and not only that, also picture that Main Street is double its width. This is basically a park, a promenade, with trees on either side, with benches to sit down on. But other thing people need to understand is no parade through this section of the park. In fact, the, the parade route basically circles the Gardens of the Imagination. In fact, according to the press releases Disney's put out, it's the longest parade route that they've ever done for any Disney park, which when you take into consideration how long the parade route is uh, for the Tokyo Disneyland, that's really saying something. Wow. Now you start to sort of take in the lay of the land. And what's interesting is Disney's worked really, really hard to take the Main Street aesthetic, the, you know, the, the sort of the silo buildings there, marry it to Mickey's Toontown, and yet layer in Chinese culture. And, and one of the ways they've done that is that they're going to be glass, these beautiful glass mosaics, particularly in their Avenue M Arcade. This is at the very end of the Mickey Avenue toward the left, facing into Gardens of Imagination. Uh, this is buildings modeled after the Carthay Circle building. And in fact, they built Carthay Circle also as part of the Disney California redo. Yep. Initially, what they discussed doing with that is that was going to be, okay, go, we're modeling that, this after a Los Angeles movie palace. We should do a show inside of it. We should put the archives in it. And in the end, it wound up as a restaurant. Now we jump ahead to Shanghai, same thing. They knew that this should be... Showbiz? Yeah. While they, they actually they carried over the young Walt and Mickey statue, which you see in DCA, that's in the place where the partner statue is in every other park. This ended up as a store. You know, and In fact, the cash wrap area for the store is actually modeled after Scrooge McDuck and his money bit, <laughs> which may be a little on the nose for some people. Speaking of statues, though, this is how kind of convoluted Shanghai Disneyland is. And, you know, it's just before the train station entrance of the park, there's a statue of Mickey dressed in his steamboat Willie outfit on top of a paddle wheeler. And this will be sort of the first thing you see as you walk up to the entrance of the park. Okay. But if you go to the sign that identifies this statue, it doesn't say Steamboat Willie. It says Steamboat Mickey. I push back at the Disney people about Steamboat Mickey, and he says, well, the Chinese don't know the character. Don't know the characters. So it's like if we said Steamboat Willie, it's like, wait a minute, the mouse is called Willie. And so, you know, the way they rationalize it is like, well, this was 
Mickey's first significant role, and this is the, the way the public knows him. And so he's wearing his Steamboat Willie costume in this statue. Ah, uh, but he's still uh, Mickey. Okay. He's, he's and they, still and they, couldn't do, they couldn't do Mickey Mouse as Steamboat Willie. No, too much. no, that's the thing. The conceit of the land is that this is where a multitude of Disney personalities actually work, live, and play. And they talk about this is where the characters from classic Disney cartoons live, as well as Disney Pixar animation. And so, so for example, you've got Remy's Patisserie among the restaurants there. But then when you, you look at the stylization and what they choose for signage and names of stores and that sort of thing, it's really kind of bizarre that, that you would think they'd, they'd take a more modern take on the Disney characters, but no. I mean, there's signs that reference Dolores the Elephant, who uh, was in the 1953 3D Donald Duck short working for Peanuts. They've also got signage that references the Acaracara bird from uh, 1944's Three Caballeros and Melody Time. And, and as you walk down the street, you have things like Practical Pigs Hardware Store and the Silly Symphony Music Store. And don't get me wrong, there's occasionally stuff that references, you know, more modern things. You have, like, the, the hardware store mm-hmm. where it's built around the, the goofy how-to shorts, but it it's mostly references that 2007 film, How to Set Up Your Home Theater. Home theater. Yeah, that was classic. Um, but it's all kind of canted in that direction. It's all kind of looking backwards. Again, you don't have Carl Fredrickson's house from up. Again, it's that notion of it's still got to be looking backwards. It's still got to be Main Street-esque. All right, we'll, we'll do the stuff from the past. And that even goes with the restaurants. I mean, for example, if you go into the Mickey's and Pals Market Cafe, uh, this is sort of uh, designed to be sort of an open-air market thing. Mm-hmm. They have four different dining rooms. They have a Mickey's Galley. They have a Tony's from Ladies and the Tramp. They have a uh, Daisy's Cafe. And then there's a whole area themed around... The Three Caballeros. It's actually the Tonys from Lady and the Tramp, I think, is the one that I think Disney fans are going to enjoy the most. That may be because Eric Goldberg, the, the you know, sort of the animation legend, the, the guy who did the genie from Aladdin or co-director of Pocahontas, he got tapped by Dave Bossert. I mean, everybody knows what the outside back alley of Tonys looks like. Right. Because yeah. they've seen Lady and the Tramp. Seen the movie, exactly. But nobody knows what the inside of it is. And, and Dave Bossert, who handles the legacy projects for Walt Disney Animation Studios, you know, they were sort of like, all right, so we're going to do a Tony's era. What would that be like? And he decided, you know, Tony's is probably like Sardi's. Okay, and, all right. <laughs> you know, so this kind of high-end restaurant. And wouldn't it be cool if the, the walls were lined with characters of these classic Disney characters? Oh, that's and, funny. He was looking for somebody who could tackle this project, and Eric's the guy who actually did Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, Mm -hmm. which you remember sort of uses the Hirschfeld drawings from the New York Times as kind of the jumping-off point. And he was like, Eric's done all this Hirschfeld stuff. Wouldn't it be cool if he could do all of the Disney characters as if they were done by one artist? So Eric takes on the project. He does 150 of these caricatures, and... They hold the show before the stuff gets shipped off to Shanghai Mm -hmm. at Walt Disney Animation Studios one night. And it says a lot about the quality of these drawings because Eric had drawn individual little drawings for the the snack table. The people he worked with at the studio actually stole them. (laughs) They couldn't take the art off the wall, but the little stuff on the table by the cupcakes, that went. And Dave noticed that, and he reached out to the folks at Disney Publishing and said, you know, this is great stuff. Maybe we should collect this in a book. Yeah. 
And sure enough, earlier this month, Eric Goldberg draws the Disney characters. It came out September 8th, and uh, again, it just really worth seeking out, folks. He did an amazing job. In fact, some of these were actually on display at the D23 Expo, but... I'll uh, uh, link to the, uh, to the book in the show notes. You know, they keep layering details on this with, with the notion of trying to make this seem like the place where the characters live and work. And for example, the Sweetheart's Confectionery in Mickey Avenue. The backstory of this building is this is Minnie Mouse's childhood home. For example, directly above the Remy's Patisserie is the L'Ecole du Gaston, Gaston's cooking school from, uh, from Red Layering this detail upon, laying this detail upon, laying this detail to try to create this vivid area where the Chinese people who are coming to this park will want to know these characters, will go into these stores. And to build on that conceit, this is the first Main Street they've built in a while that has virtually every shop, every restaurant has the open kitchen conceit. If you, you know, this is the candy shop, you can look in and see the candy being made. If you're the patisserie, you can look straight into the kitchen. You know, all designed to slow you down. Nice. But again, circling back to the, the concept art that I, I, you know, sent you before we get started here today. It took them a while to settle on this idea. And in fact, what's kind of fun about the work that Tim Delaney did early on this, it was just trying to get a handle on what a Disney park could do that would be different, that could step away from Main Street. So you've got the three different ideas here. Yep. Right. Uh, so and I'll, I'll post a link to this uh, to this art in the show notes as well. The, the top one looks to be sort of classic Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got uh, something that looks like Crumbin's Chinese Theater, or is that... Uh, well, that, again, Disney MGM, you know, they had the rights to use that building. In fact, sure. you know, anybody who's seen any of the art that was done for the early Euro Disney MGM Studios, that park, just like the one in Florida, their castle was going to be Grauman's Chinese. So it's like, okay, we still have the rights to this building internationally, you know, to use in a theme park setting. Let's put that in. But the problem with that was that it was going to just dwarf the scale of it. it to do it properly, it was going to dwarf the scale of everything else in the park. Yeah, it's the largest building in terms mm. of mass. It's uh, a couple of other small towers that are as tall as it, but nothing is wide and as tall as it. Mm-hmm. It looks to be the thickest of the buildings. And then to jump ahead to the, the, the second pitch, you know, the notion is how many of the Disney fantasy films sort of feature creatures that live in an enchanted wood or, you know, creatures, you know, Winnie the Pooh lives in a hollow tree or sure. that sort of thing. And so this is literally an entire street of enchanted trees, you know, just that, you know, each of the, the shops and the restaurants, and they have the wonderful windows and indoors on the second floors and roofs and that sort of thing. But it's it's all trees. Just figuring, again, the Chinese can't have a problem with trees. Trees? You know? what, could, what could possibly go wrong with trees? There's you a know. windmill in this? I guess that's a... Is that, the, is that a store? Yeah. The whole thing was, was just supposed to be, you know, a whimsical, different take on things. The form of the trees reminds me of Disney's uh, short Flowers and Trees. Mm-hmm. So yep. long, thin trees with the leaves all the way at the top. So it's not a, it's not like a round tree. It's it's more like a, a very long trunk with the leaves at the very top. By the way, you know that, that's something else that might be worth checking out. Because again, you look at that and it's like, well, where could that idea go? If you entered through a forest, where could you go? If you Google John Horney, that's H O R N Y. John was a, a concept artist for Disney for years, and he also has an online portfolio for If you go to his site, there's a couple of pieces of art in there mm-hmm. for Disney's Enchanted Forest. Oh, really? What's wonderful is that 
in the heart of the park where the castle is supposed to be, John came up with this amazing design where it's trees that form the classic Disney castle shape. Just the notion is that what if you went into the Enchanted Forest? What would you find? What you'd find are rides like the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. It eventually ended up as part of New Fantasyland for Walt Disney World. But the way ideas mutate and, you know, wander around the company looking for homes. But I just, I love this notion of, you know, you walk up a main street that's set in a forest and you see that classic castle shape in front of you, only it's trees. Mm. They wanted to take what the Chinese had problems with with previous Disney parks and just make it go away. And it's like, well, you can't be upset about nature. You can't be upset about trees. And then, you know, the whole notion of the third iteration that we have at the bottom of this drawing is like, okay, so you have trouble with Main Street. Okay, so we'll just go whimsical. We'll just take every shop and store and restaurant on that street and just the building will tell you what's in it's that built. It's literal architecture. So there's a yeah. giant coffee cup over the coffee shop. And when I say giant, I mean it's it's at least a story and a half tall yep. with uh, with fake steam coming out. The hat shop is not only the Sorcerer Mickey hat, it's got the giant word hats under it, supporting the hat mm-hmm. above the store as well. The department store actually says department store on it. <laughs> you know, okay. That's exactly. You address the problem of Main Street is turn-of-the-century America, you find a way to step away from it. Yeah, and so they've actually moved here from having trouble with the ideas to saying, well, if you, if you have trouble with the ideas, you can't have trouble with the words. No, that's it exactly. To bring this full circle here, so you know, obviously, in the end, Disney took the two problems they had, that the Chinese government wasn't going to allow them to be on state television to introduce the Disney characters you know, five years out so people would know what they were going in. Mm-hmm. And they were uncomfortable with the whole American idea. And it's like, okay, so we're going to do Mickey Avenue. We're going to do this is where people will be introduced to the characters and they'll have to deal with them going into the park and they'll have to deal with them coming out of the park. So, you know, we'll get two bites of the same apple. Then when you look at the very next thing they did, you know, the mm-hmm. gardens of imagination where it's like, okay, since we've reduced the site, the overall length of Main Street, we can now create a much bigger hub. I know we've we talked about this problem previously that they discovered with the Hong Kong Disneyland about the Chinese families that would go that, you know, the two parents would bring the one child and both sets of grandparents yep. and then have nothing to do with them. And and this is massive, Len. This is 11 acre park in the center of the park. And there's no less than seven different gardens. You know, wow. There's, there's well, the big garden, the Garden of the Twelve Friends, that takes the the Chinese zodiac and finds Disney characters that sort of key off of that. For example, the ram is represented by the, the three leaping sheep in the Jolly Holiday scene from uh, Mary Poppins. The dragon is Mushu from Mulan, and, and, and so forth. But in addition to that, there's a melody garden where you can see musical performances, a romance garden. There's the Garden of the Magic Feather, and this will be where the park's version of the Dumbo the Flying Elephant ride will be located. There's a Fantasia Garden, and that will be where the park's carousel, which is themed to Fantasia, will be located. Okay. And then there's the Storybook Castle Garden, that, that this is where you stand to watch the shows that are staged in front of the Enchanted Castle. There's even going to be a garden that provides you with killer view of the Night the Dream nighttime spectacular. And and what they decided to do, if you know Disneyland, you know where the Jungle Cruise is literally right up against the left side of Main Street as you go into the park. Yep. This is where they've decided to build their Disney Town. 
This will have five separate districts. There'll be a Broadway Boulevard, a Broadway Plaza, an area called the Spice Alley, a Marketplace, and then the Lakeshore, which, by the way, the Lakeshore is where the, the Shanghai version of the Boathouse is a restaurant from uh, Disney Springs is being built. The top of the street in Broadway Plaza, this is where they're building. They're building a brand new theater, the Walt Disney Grand Theater, and this will be the home of the Lion King, the Broadway show. They're, they're bringing over, they're doing a full-size version of the show. This is not a cut-down theme park version. This is the full two-and-a-half hours, one-act break. Everything that Julie Taymor did for New York and the, the traveling version of the show, you'll see there. That's impressive. Because you haven't done the train tracks. You haven't done the berm. At the end of Disney Town are, are this sort of ring of restaurants that face out into the park. Because obviously there are going to be perimeter roads and, you know, backstage areas and that sort of thing. But they're deliberately being built in that area. So people who are dining in these high-end restaurants won't be able to see the backstage, but they will have this primo view into the park. That's nice. You know, from there, that they'll be able to see the Storybook Castle and Tomorrowland, and these are two lands we'll get to with future shows. But it's going to be interesting to see how people, particularly those who come uh, from stateside, to visit the new Disney park, you know, when it opens in, in 2016, how they're going to react to this. It's going to be a tiny percentage of, uh, of American tourists there. It's going to be oh, mostly, no, mostly Chinese. Uh, oh, no, no. But you designed for an audience that doesn't necessarily know the stuff you're designing. Here's my question about the Main Street thing. Why didn't yep. they go with a turn-of-the-century Chinese Main Street? The belief was that if they did that, they might, by accident deliver caricature they, they might do something that's a, i mean okay. take for example in the gardens of the imagination they actually have a restaurant there the wandering moon tea house and it's it's a traditional chinese restaurant and again with views of the castle and in chinese culture there's the concept of the the wandering poet you know the storyteller that comes in and shares and then moves on sure and you know so this is kind of their nod in that direction that's what they're trying to do and from a lot of the Chinese employees, there's this kind of, like, be really careful with that. My aunt painted a picture one time, never saw her again, that type of thing. Yeah, it's just because, again, it's the notion of, okay, that that's going to be, again, the authentic Chinese, but distinctly Disney. And it's just the whole notion of this isn't necessarily how the modern Chinese government views itself. And you're building something that sort of looks a little too far backwards. In fact, that was another one of the issues. Again, you know, when you say turn of the century Chinese, it's just sort of like, well, you know, the People's Revolution was 20s and 30s and, you know, the Great March. You know, there's a lot of stuff that China doesn't necessarily like to look back on. Yeah, yeah. In the end, when they tried to do something that would be that centered, that specific, it was like, no, 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 don't do that. And also, this is the Walt Disney Company, you know, the giant armor of which is its consumer products. And it's like, look, we want to sell stuff. You uh, know, so stuff related to the characters. Yeah, I get it. Okay, that makes and sense. That's the other thing. These stores in the uh, the Mickey Avenue area will be loaded with park-specific merch that will put the Disney characters in classic Chinese garb. Because so much of it is kind of counterintuitive. I mean, the whole notion of, for example, going with the double-wide version of uh, Main Street and foreshortening it so you have enough room to do your Gardens of Imagination. I mean, one of the reasons that the shops 
on Main Street do so well at all the other Disney things because they funnel you down that that tiny little street and you right. can't help but notice as you walk down the street it's like oh well they're selling candy there oh hats you know that sort of thing and you go in but if you widen that boulevard from a a retail point of view people who aren't looking at shop windows don't shop right if it's uh, too far away they're just going to walk uh, walk down the middle and and, and move past it. Yeah, the belief was that, look, we have to do this this way, especially if we're not going to run the parade down the street. Why not take advantage of this? Hmm, um, when, does, uh, when does this open, Jim? 2016. Um, the initially, it was the spring of 2016. They've, they're being very cagey with the date. My understanding is they are supposed to be officially announcing the opening date within the next 60 days. Okay. But a lot of that sort of keys off of work that's going on at the work site. You may have just heard, for example, that the Chinese government just told 150 businesses that are located around the Shanghai Disney Resort that they have to close and relocate so that the air quality around the park will, will improve. Wow. Oh, so, no, uh, so no more uh, lead smelting or, uh, or anything like that outside, directly outside the gates? Oh, that's good. Then it becomes a question of, well, you have to allow those businesses the time to relocate. You have to allow how long is it going to take for the smog to clear. I mean, it's like ironic, you know, that we started the show off talking about how you only get that one chance to make a, a first impression. You know, and that's that's the whole thing of, you know, how do you do a Main Street that sort of introduces your story for the theme parks? That's going to be the same thing with the Shanghai Disneyland. There's the photos that come back from the opening day, and if... If they are smoggy skies or that sort of thing, that's going to be the narrative that Disney's got to overcome. What's kind of interesting to be talking about this on the heels of the, the two-part PBS Disney documentary, but they actually touched on the fact that as part of that, the opening of Disneyland was a disaster, that they had the, what is it, 10,000 more guests than they expected and women's heels sinking in the asphalt and that sort of thing. And Walt basically had to invite back every reporter who had said bad things about the park. And over the next two and three years, from 55 to 58, bring them back and show them that the park worked. It took a long time to turn around that reputation. And, and you know, and that was just back do it better up front, is what you're saying. Yeah. Back then, nobody had an iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you couldn't send pictures of ridiculously long lines instantaneously around the world. Now we can. I mean, don't get me wrong. I know this is China. I know the Internet works differently over there. But that's our entrance area and our, our hub of Shanghai Disneyland. And we'll go further into the park and explore it further on in other shows further on down the line for the Unofficial Guide here. That sounds great. Thanks, Jim. Thanks very much. Not a problem. All right. You've been listening to the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. The show is produced by Aaron Adams. And please go on to iTunes and Stitcher and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.